The scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 51, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our God and Father, when we hear your voice, may we not harden our hearts, but be still and listen to you. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to hear your voice behind your masks. My name is Ben Yurt, and I'm the Minister of Worship here at First Baptist Church. 
and uh, it has been good to get to know you over these past seven months. I know that uh, maybe it's taken a little bit longer than usual because there are certain things happening that just prevent people from gathering together. Uh, I'm not sure what that thing is, but um, we'll just continue to get to know each other. And uh, it was wonderful to um, be led in worship through the prayers, through the, the reading of scripture, through the songs as well. And those songs, some of those songs, come from the Psalms, which is uh, what we're going to speak a little bit about today. But I thought before I did that, just give you a bit of background on my life, in case you haven't had a chance to, to meet myself or my wife. Um, so I am a missionary kid. I'm sure there are many of you who are kids of missionaries or pastors, uh, people in ministry. And I grew up in Brazil until I was eight years old. Uh, where my parents were working as missionaries with Jan's Team Ministries for 13 years, and then uh, we moved back to Canada, and they, my dad continued to work in their offices and uh, lived in uh, Calgary and Winnipeg, just kind of splitting our time between Alberta and uh, Manitoba. So I consider myself a prairie boy. I think there are some other prairie boys and girls here in the house today, but, uh, but definitely not a Blue Bombers or Saskatchewan Rough Riders fan, so sorry. But there it is. So uh, you may be wondering, how did, a, how did a prairie boy end up in BC? Well, uh, when, I was, when I graduated from high school, I went to uh, Three Hills, Alberta, where there is a school called the Prairie Bible Institute. I went there for four years and met my wife, Krista, who is from Tawasin. She grew up in Tawasin. Uh, we met there, we moved out here to um, Vancouver and got married, and uh, over the course of the past 17 years, we've made our way from BC to Alberta to the United Kingdom, BC, Alberta, United Kingdom, and now we're back in BC, and we're hoping just to stay here uh, for a good long time, um, as uh, I've, we've been moving around for school and for work and those kinds of things. Um, so through those years, uh, of course, progressing through, through school, as I mentioned, uh, I've been working through, on graduate studies, uh, had the chance to, to go to Cambridge in the UK uh, for a master's and then to the University of Alberta for a doctorate in choral conducting. And that's been a large part of my, um, my educational professional journey. It's been through music, through conducting, through choirs, and through the history of music in the church. My wife, uh, she's pursued advocacy work for a lot of, of uh, our marriage, particularly with individuals uh, with Down syndrome. And uh, she currently works in the communications sector with Alpha, Alpha Canada. She's the communications lead there and also working on completing her master's from Trinity Western. Um, we have three children, Jacob, Ella, and Audrey, all with their very distinct personalities. And I'm sure you'll meet them running around here uh, from Sunday to Sunday. And uh, we also have a dog whose formal name is Lord Byron. On his certificate, it's Lord Byron. He would take a whole... Uh, 20 minutes just to explain what he's all about. So that's that's a very brief surface rundown of our um, introduction, I guess, of our, ourselves and our life. And I'd be very happy to, to chat with you as we get to know each other and um, can go a little bit deeper as well. One other important thing about our family is that we live at a place called Kinbrace, which is a community that's uh, set up for transitional housing for refugees um, and refugee claimants who just come to Canada. I know First Baptist has been connected with Kinbrace and we've appreciated that uh, relationship very, very much as well. So we live there as a host, host family. So I've, as I mentioned, I have a passion for music, for worship in the church. And I found inspiration uh, from today's reading many, many times over, specifically the verse, 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall proclaim your praise because it's encouraging to me to know that God is both the source and uh, the end result of my praise. He's the source of life and of course we praise him out of that life. So we're currently making our way through the book of Acts, examining how God worked in the midst of the early church through his Holy Spirit. But every fourth Sunday, we're pausing to reflect on God's call on our lives and how he's calling to those who do not yet know him. And this past Advent and Christmas, of course, a wonderful opportunity to celebrate how God came down from heaven to inhabit the world he'd created, to walk among the people he had made, to show us what the kingdom of God looked like, to die for the sins of the world and to be raised from the dead. By doing this, he defeated the dark powers of sin and destruction that haunt our every step. And we've felt some of the weight of that, um, I think, as we've we moved through the pandemic and as we, um, we see this decay and uh, the things that keep us from being fully human in a, in a way, uh, so much so that we come to God over and over again. And we do that uh, Sunday mornings and throughout the week, of course. So Jesus, the one we celebrate, uh, the one that we've mentioned already in our announcements, the focus of our, our church, the center of what we do, the songs that we've sung, the Son of God is the Word of God made flesh. He came to his people and to those who would receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, to be welcomed into the family of God, to bear that identification a child of the living, caring, holy, and loving God. Now, speaking of things to identify with, I don't know if you, where you grew up, what kind of high school you went to, if it was called high school or secondary school, but uh, oftentimes in North America, there's this tradition of handing out high school yearbooks. So everyone has a picture in the yearbook, you, you hand them around at the end of the year, you sign your messages, and usually there's something like, have a great summer, or hags for short, sounds less than complimentary, but um, this process of just saying, you know, we know you, thanks for being here, um, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you again. So unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to appear in my final uh, year of high school in that yearbook because the editor had made some kind of a mistake and uh, my picture did not appear. Uh, instead, there was someone else's picture who appeared above my name. So it's not the end of the world, that's okay. Um, it's not a terrible problem, except I always did wonder about this fellow because um, I can't remember his name now, but um, you could pick a verse or you could pick a, pick a quote or you could pick a saying that would go under that name, and that's what you would be identified as. That, that's what you would be remembered as as you go out uh, from there because people would have the yearbook and look back on it. So the verse that I chose, uh, this was not a Christian high school, but I chose a verse and said, uh, you know, I wanted Acts 4.12, which we'll go through as we go through Acts here. Uh, and it speaks of Jesus, of course, says, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I always wondered how that fellow felt about that, having his face attached to, to that verse. I hope it has done him well in his life. So that is really the end point of my message. This is not the end of my message right now, but it is the end point of the message um, that I want to, to share with you today that Jesus Christ is the source of our salvation. He's worthy of all praise and um, the end of our praise. The Bible in all its variety explains that there's no other way in which we can become truly human, that we can live meaningful lives and yes, even die meaningful deaths and be raised to eternal life except by Jesus, the Son of God. 
It's not piecemeal. Salvation in Jesus extends to every part of our life, our death, and what happens afterwards. And it's a story that's written all over the pages of the Bible. So the Bible, of course, a collection of writings written over the millennia by people who listened to and were guided by God's spirit to tell the great story of his loving purposes for humankind. God had always planned to live somehow amongst his people, but they rebelled against him, believing lies told about themselves. And they allowed those lies to become greater in their minds than the truth of God's desire for them, that they would be whole, that they would be at peace with him and with one another that they would reflect God's goodness by caring for the world together. But when these people began to believe the lie that they could be like God, that they could rule over themselves and raise themselves up as gods, they broke that relationship with their maker. This covenant, an agreement or coming together for the purpose of mutual relationship and responsibilities was broken into many pieces. So man and woman were separated from God unable to live together any longer in that perfect relationship. But God's great grace and mercy, his longing for his people would not allow humans to be separated from him forever. And so over the course of the books of the Bible, you could read about how God reached out to humankind and raised up a group of people for himself. These were a people who were to show the rest of the world what God was like, holy, merciful, rich in love and full of wrath for the injustices in the world. This people were supposed to pick up from where the first humans had fallen off to reflect God's goodness out into the world around them. The purpose for this was that others would see them and would want to be a part of that great movement of mercy and justice and right and wholesome living. But this proved incredibly difficult because just like those first humans, God's formed people also found it impossible to live rightly without failing time after time. They followed their promises to God for a while living in a way that kind of reflected the steadfast love, mercy, and holiness of God. But almost always, they gave in to their own selfishness, not relying on the one who had created and cared for them to honor his end of the covenant, this coming together that they had mutually made. So what did that honoring look like? Well, again, that the people of Israel, which is what they were called, would live holy, thankful, and justice-filled lives, worshiping only God, and God would bless them with peace, abundance, and mercy. This is described in the Bible as God's steadfast love, that he would bless them so that they would bless others. All nations of the world shall be blessed through you, God promised to Abraham, one of the first of this nation. Now, because living in relationship with anyone is difficult, throughout the generations, God sent people called prophets to show his people how they'd gone off track and how they could come back to him, getting back into that right relationship. This way back always came and always comes down to confession. They would acknowledge that something was broken, that they had chosen to break their agreement with God, hurting themselves and shutting out the rest of the world from God's good blessings. It happened so often that the hearts of many of God's people just grew hard to hearing God's voice. Even when they heard it, they couldn't understand it because they'd built a habit of ignoring it but God always brought them back to the fundamental truth of a relationship with him. What does God require of us? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Or as we heard in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It's not that our wrongdoing would be held over us, but that confession would allow us, would free us to walk in step and in gratitude with God who created us and is yearning to make us whole. Much of this back and forth between the people and their God can be seen on full display in the Psalms, and uh, we've seen a lot of the the praise part of it uh, this morning. So when we talk about Psalms, we're speaking of a collection of songs or poetry in the Bible that were compiled over the centuries Some attributed to King David, uh, the greatest king of Israel, some to other prophets and priests, and there are great riches to be mined out of the book of the Psalms. It's always fascinating uh, for me to think of them as the prayer book of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, uh, the prayer book with which Jesus himself and the early church would have been intimately familiar. Go back and read parts of the gospel or the whole gospels with that in mind the Psalms as the prayer book of Jesus and his disciples, his followers. So I encourage you to do that, to read the Psalms out loud at home, uh, to listen to them being sung. You can go on YouTube and find three hours of continuous Psalm singing if you want. Um, I like doing that, but I think it's a good practice, but I'll leave that to you. Um, but there is that practice of singing the Psalms, and we've, we've done that this morning, and um, other churches and uh, other universities with, this, with a Christian heritage will make a, a practice of singing Psalms daily, singing Psalms weekly, uh, of course, coming out of monasteries, this, this, this idea that we're making our way through the Psalms um, every month. Now, I had, as I mentioned, had this opportunity to study in Cambridge, and um, in Cambridge, there are many different college choirs in that, that town. If you've ever had the chance to be there, uh, there's, it's a, quite a university city, but in the center, there are a lot of different colleges in that university, and they have college choirs, of course, that will sing evensong prayers, um, uh, either daily or, or a few times a week. Now, attendance isn't always high at these services, as you might imagine. Uh, there are quite a few colleges, and there's a running joke amongst the students that it's not really a proper evensong service if the choir doesn't outnumber the congregation. Um, but one service in particular that was very popular was a service that would mark Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. And one of the reasons uh, for that was uh, the setting of Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 would usually be sung at this service, a psalm of confession before God, confession of private sin that impacts public life. And uh, this setting in particular was by a composer named Allegri. Very, very beautiful, exquisite harmonies, soaring top line, and it, re- it makes its way through the entire Psalm 51. And so there was a practice of trying to see how many uh, performances of this psalm you could actually get in one night because the services were at different times. So if you go to Cambridge or Oxford or some place like that on Ash Wednesday, you can run around to the different colleges and see how these different choirs sing Psalm 51. They're very close together. Uh, my, my recommendation is Trinity College Choir if you're there. But from uh, the beginning to the end, the Psalms reveal to us a depth of human experience and relation to God that resonates with our own, and that is on full display in Psalm 51. They show us how much God loves his creation, how he wants to redeem people, and is about the mission of setting the world to right. In the Psalms, the sterility of our own society's lack of imagination, it's challenged by a creative view of existence before a loving and holy God. The Psalms challenge a sterile view of the world. 
Tom Wright describes the book of the Psalms as a medium that invites singers or readers to live at the crossroads of time, space, and matter. What does that mean? Well, we often think about time as very linear in our part of the world, in our society. But in the Psalms, we find this interaction between one time and another, one space and another, and one order and another. In the Psalms, what we call the past and the future, they come together in what we perceive and experience as the present. Our place and God's place, earth and heaven, they are nearer to each other than we can imagine. The created order, the way things are now, and the order that God is bringing into the world, the way things will be when God renews both earth and heaven, those two ways overlap in the Psalms. The Psalms invite the singer or the reader to live at the crossroads of time, space, and matter. From beginning to end, the Psalms are expressions of poets, prophets, priests, and kings, as I've said, and they trace in that overlapping way, they trace the response of a nation over the history of their relationship with God. And some are deeply personal, as was mentioned, some are wholly public, and many are both. In many of them, the great King David bears his soul in a way that probably makes many of us uncomfortable, a way that we would never do in public, let alone, in, or in private, let alone in public. Uh, but he does this because he's pouring out his heart to God and he's setting the example for God's community. From them come some of the most enduring words in the history of human literature. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And so in the midst of this struggle of a people trying to live in a right relationship with God, and I hope we're always thinking about what is happening now, how do we live in that relationship with God? And those people almost always failing, God chooses David to lead, he chooses a shepherd boy who becomes king over God's people. I just encourage you to think of why would God choose a shepherd to lead a people who were to show the world what God was like. David's psalms reflect an artistic temperament. The shepherd turned warrior poet king contributes to the songbook for the people of God. Again, intensely personal, joyous, verging on the edge of despair, reflecting deep wisdom, impatience, reconciliation, the full gamut of human emotion and experience. And in them, in these psalms, we see God's people with the king as the representative of those people, working out a relationship to God in a broken world that has thrown everything at them. Yet in failures, in triumphs, in waiting and in praising, there's an acceptance that God has not and will not abandon them. Through it all, David keeps returning to God no matter how painful. Psalm 51, again, a psalm of confession. David writes this psalm as this individual confession to be sung publicly in the worshiping community. And uh, Mark read out the inscription for that psalm, gives you a context for it. David had, um, he had slept with a woman named Bathsheba he had arranged the murder of her husband, and he was called out on it by one of the prophets that God had sent to turn his people back to him. And you can read about that story in 2 Samuel. 
It's a heartbreaking story with terrible consequences that extend far beyond the people that are immediately involved. And David had violated that covenant with God, that coming together in a right relationship. He set himself up as the final authority of what was good and what wasn't. And so when Nathan, that prophet that God had sent, confronts David about it, the selfish foundations of David's decisions begin to crumble. When he experiences that confrontation, he confesses to God in this song, Psalm 51, that is still sung today, sung for the rest of human history, a song that composers have set to music time and time again, a song that holds a confession for one of the ugliest crimes imaginable. And what David composed, again, it was sung publicly in response to his secret private sin. This, again, the, the inscription on the psalm directs to the choir master, indicating that it was to be sung in public worship. So there was no acknowledge, or there was no hiding behind what he had done, but he comes to God um, as a representative of a community and as an individual with a relationship with God, and confesses in Psalm 51. So let's just take a closer look here at what David wrote. Uh, we won't go through the whole thing, but just parts of it, seeing how what it is saying to us as well. Verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Do you feel weighted down by things you've done? The things that have been done to you broken relationships or unfulfilled dreams? Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have you, have I felt the weight of a trapped conscience? Verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do we know the depths of our wrongdoing? It will not let us go but we will see the result of it every day. Verse 4, against you, speaking to God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God doesn't want humiliation for the sake of crushing someone. He wants honesty and truth in the center of our hearts so that he can restore us to full humanity. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Have you ever felt that deep peace and joy? When was the last time you were able to laugh freely Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We would pray that God would make us new, that even against our own inclination to be selfish, that he would center us in his steadfast love. And then, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. 
This is what God has required. It is what God has always required. A broken and a contrite heart before him, he will not despise and he will raise up. When God repairs us and builds us up, then we live in right and good relationship with him. This confession bears open David's heart and the depths of his brokenness. He doesn't hide it from God because he knows he can't. He acknowledges how he has tried to put himself above God and asks that God would show him the loving mercy that God had promised, had always promised that he would if his people turned back to him. David is completely uttered, utterly honest and utterly dependent on God. As we've mentioned already, God identifies, or David identifies, this crucial aspect of God's character in verse 17, that God doesn't delight in rituals that are empty of the response of the heart. He doesn't just want our words and our actions, but what he truly desires is a broken and humble heart, and that those who come to him in that way will never be put aside. I spoke in the beginning of how God wants to be with his people and traced a bit of that history throughout the Bible, this going back and forth between a people who had committed themselves to him, who failed, came back again, failed, came back again. Another writer in the Bible uh, writes this long after David, after Jesus Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer goes on to say that God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The writer quotes in those two spots a psalm, that looks forward to Christ, God's promise made to David, the very same King David who wrote Psalm 51, uh, and to anticipate the coming of Jesus as God's son. And now, as we've seen in Christmas, in our Advent celebrations at Christmas, we celebrate someone greater than the King David, someone who would fulfill all the things that God's people had been unable to do by reflecting the steadfast love and holiness of God out into the world. This is Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. We remember how God came down from heaven to dwell with his people at last in the person of Jesus Christ. And this Jesus lived the holy and right life, one of forgiveness and great healing, a life dedicated to reflecting God to the world because he was God himself. But many of those to whom he came chose not to believe him. Unlike David, when Jesus called out their wrongness and their brokenness, they shut him out. They could not stand the truth of what he was saying to them. And when he confronted them and explained that they, like David, had been proud on the outside, stuck in their own selfishness, keeping God's light from shining out into the world, they crushed him and put him to death. God himself came to them and they crucified Jesus, the Lord of glory, the bright and morning star. But the good news is that by Jesus' death on a Roman cross, he defeated the powers of darkness and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead by the great power of God, which was a sign of hope for the whole world to see. The hope that all who believe in him, 
who put their trust in him, who come to him in brokenness and a humble heart, will be called the children of the living God. These are broken people made whole to declare the wonderful steadfast love of God to the world around him, them. The death and resurrection of Jesus broke that cycle of sin and selfishness and darkness. And now he calls on all people everywhere to come to him with humble hearts, with broken hearts, to not hide, to not dissemble before him, not to cloak the things that you've done in words that try to make it seem better, but to come to God with humble hearts to be forgiven, renewed, and restored. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. The thing that you take upon yourself, I will join you in that yoke and we will journey together. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What God truly desires is a broken and humble heart. Those who come to him like this will never be put aside. They will be made wholly human and reflect God's steadfast love to the world around them. Let's pray. God, our Father, we stand before you and no other. We have grieved you by what we have done and by what we have left undone, and our hearts are heavy. Lord, we confess our sin to you. Please forgive us and restore us. Let us hear the joy and the gladness again in your presence. Open our lips, Lord Jesus, and our mouth will proclaim your praise. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.